Music to My Ears, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. On this episode, I sit down with board-certified trust and estate attorney, Tama brooks Closick. Tama is a graduate of Harvard Law School and has run her own highly regarded law firm, Closick & Associates, in Houston for nearly a decade. Previous to that, she was at Vincent & Elkins Law Firm 10 years. She and I sit down and we discuss, what does it mean to own a second home? How do you do it right? And how do you avoid the pitfalls? Here we go. So Tama, I am so happy that we're spending time today to finally sit down and work on a subject that I know comes up a lot for my clients, I think possibly comes up a lot for your clients. And this is, well, let me put it this way. Let's do it like I'm calling you. It is basically summertime. We've started to get to summertime here. And we are in one of our favorite vacation spots and we've decided we're gonna buy a vacation home. And I call you up and I say, how do I buy this vacation home the right way? And I don't mean, where do I get the money? Let's assume I've got the money figured out. What's the right structure to buy this vacation home? How, how do you start to answer that question when you get that? Have you gotten those calls before? We have received those calls a number of times, Steve. Okay. And that is not uncommon that people will come back, especially from summer, uh, especially from a spring break and say, oh my goodness, we just love Aspen. We love Telluride. We love Cabo. And then the thought is, how are we going to go ahead and purchase this residence? And what's the right structure exactly as you're describing to do that? And it really breaks down, I think, into four different categories. One is just individual ownership. We usually discourage individual ownership because of ancillary probate. So if you die owning a property in another state or another country, then you have to face a probate in that jurisdiction. So we try to avoid individual ownership. And and when you say individual ownership, I mean, that's my wife and I went and we just signed the papers and... We own this in our name. That's exactly correct. And if you're in a foreign jurisdiction outside the United States, there are certain types of entities that may be permissible owners, and usually the realtor is somebody who'd be able to assist you in in coordinating with local counsel there. We've worked to identify local counsel for clients. But individual ownership is usually not what should be done. And when clients do that, we often find ourselves transferring the property at a later point in time to one of the other forms. So Another form would be entity ownership, either LLC, partnership. Uh, Those are forms that are very common for holding property. And we usually find those forms to be more appropriate if there's a thought about renting the property. Entities have state formation fees. They have annual filing obligations. And there might be some increased costs associated with initially creating the entity and then the care and feeding of the entity on an ongoing basis. So before we go ahead and think about acquiring it in an entity, if we don't have an entity already in existence, we're oftentimes thinking about, is there a plan to rent it? There is a plan to rent it. We really like an entity form because it provides liability protection for the owners. Again, when it's a properly structured entity and the entity form is being respected. Now, do you tend to lean toward an LLC or a partnership or does it just depend on the situation? How do you think of those two? 
as you look between the different forms of entity partnership or LLC, I would usually favor an LLC. There's only one entity as opposed to two entities. You can also have a disregarded entity for federal income tax purposes if it's owned by only one other person or one other trust, or if it's owned by a husband and wife in a community property state. So the income tax reporting can be a little bit more simpler at the LLC level as well. But there could be other factors that lead you to choose another form of entity. Now, I'm, I'm just thinking in my mind that somebody's listening. I know we're going to go through the other two ways. But if somebody already owns the property, like they're listening mm-hmm. and they're thinking, oh, we, we own this. We've owned it for four or five years in our name. That ability to transfer it into an LLC or something, not that big a deal. I mean, you can still do it. So you can still do it, but of course you want to make sure everything's lining up. If there's a mortgage associated with the property, you want to make sure that you get consent to the lender prior to the transfer because that's going to be default under your mortgage documents. In addition, you want to make sure that insurance is lining up. So before we Mm -hmm. go ahead and transfer it to the LLC, we want to make sure that the LLC is now an additional insured. And so we have that binder for that period during which we're transferring. There's also some transfer taxes or stamp duties in a lot of very desirable vacation jurisdictions. These are taxes that just apply to the transfer of property. They are local taxes. Mm. They're usually not state taxes. And it really requires visiting with somebody in that local jurisdiction to make sure that any subsequent transfer of the property, including to a single member LLC, is going to be exempt from those transfer taxes. That's one that can really catch people. And sometimes those stamp taxes can be 2% of the value of the entire property, especially in foreign jurisdictions. There are these types of stamp duties. It's literally that old-fashioned kind of stamp on the deed itself um, that can be costly. A lot of times these transfers foreign jurisdictions not as much but in the United States are, um, are are taxes that you can actually get an exemption from but you need to know how to apply for it and make sure that you qualify in advance of the transfer. I'd say those are some of the biggest issues we see with just going ahead and transferring it without really being well advised. So yes we can transfer would have been a whole lot better if we would have done it right. So we've got the I can put it in my name probably not what you recommend. Yes. An LLC Yes. What are you said? There was a couple other options that you think about. What are those other two? Maybe yes. And so one can be a trust that's your revocable trust. A lot of people are instead of having just simple wills, they have revocable trusts. That's like a will substitute. It's a valid trust that exists today. That's for your own benefit. That basically takes the place of your will at your death, and it disposes of all the property that's in that trust at your death. Your will may send all the property that remains at your death that's not in that trust. Um, to the trust, but it is existing today. Um, Or it's one that can be created. I've created revocable trusts for the special purpose of just solely acquiring an out-of-state property. This is a trust that can be altered or amended anytime by you. You are the beneficiary and you are the trustee. So you can change it at any time. You can sell the property. You haven't given anything away to any other person. You haven't used any of your lifetime exemption from gift tax or your annual exclusion amount. This is just a trust for your own benefit. It is purely a vehicle for holding title to property. Um, It's very simple. It's very easy to create. If it's not a full dispositive instrument, not like your full-blown will, it's actually a very, very simple trust that can be created and can be created very, very quickly. No state formation fees, no ongoing 
obligations with any secretary of state. There might be a state filing obligation depending if you have some income associated with renting the property in that state. I would usually advise an entity if you're if you're going to rent the property. But that'd be the revocable trust. And really the purpose of that is to avoid probate in that state or other jurisdiction. Um, gives you a lot of flexibility. So where you are going to use the property for your own personal purposes, have no rental anticipated, the revocable trust is a very good option and don't want to give the property away, which is the next type of trust. So you could create a trust which is an irrevocable trust, or you might already have an existing irrevocable trust for family members, maybe for spouse and family members that has assets that could go ahead and acquire the property. Uh, depending on the form of trust, you can lend money to that trust um, and make assets available. It may again already have existing assets. You could make a gift to that trust. Um, usually think that a second home is not the greatest appreciating asset that you might have. Mm -hmm. It also is one that has a lot of costs associated with it. Oftentimes it's not the best asset to transfer from a wealth transfer perspective to family members, but we have had clients use family trust or create family trust to acquire second homes. Well, and you know, I'm speaking for Texas a little bit. We often run into people who want to have a ranch or something of that nature that's going to stay in the family or they inherited it. And they're saying the number one thing is just make sure this never leaves the family, right? And does that lean more toward the uh, irrevocable trust? That would lean towards an entity. Entities yeah. can last forever or an irrevocable trust that's located in a jurisdiction that's not Texas because Texas is still a rule against perpetuity state, which means if you establish a trust in Texas, that trust can only last for what is something about 80 to 90 years. Um, if you establish a trust in another state like Delaware, that trust could last in perpetuity. I'd like an entity form, I think, if there was going to be a property that's really a family legacy property. Mm -hmm. I think you can really put a lot of definitions in the documents themselves that speak to the, the property, the ongoing use of the property, um, how it should be managed. You can have a single manager. You could even look to have some type of entity come in as a manager that's really going to understand the special purposes associated with this property property and the intent that it be maintained for a long period of time. I also think a larger piece of property like a ranch with a lot of vacant space, a lot of place where somebody can come upon the property and do something that might harm themselves or somebody else is really just better in, an, in a limited liability type of entity, even if that limited liability entity is then held in a trust for family members. Uh, lake properties as well, I have a lot of inherent dangers associated with them. A lot of times there are watercraft and alcohol that exist or coexist. And uh, it's important to, again, make sure that there's protection for uh, the owners ultimately, which if the thought is we want this to last for a long time, we don't want to see this asset be consumed by an adverse event that occurred over one fun weekend. Same thing with ranches. You've got a lot of vehicles there. You've got a lot of inherently dangerous vehicles. Sometimes hunting. You have hunting, you have guns and beer, people who are waking up early in the morning with both of them hand in hand. Um, and so those are those are properties where I really do advocate the LLC structure, I would say, lake house and ranch property. And if you were to look in rural counties in Texas and sort of look at who the owners are, you would see very few individual owners. You would see mostly entity owners for large tracts of land. And am I right in assuming when I hear these options, if I wanted to own that with somebody else, maybe my parents, my in-laws, my brother, something like that, 
the LLC, again, is going to be the easiest way to structure a joint ownership. Am I in line with that? I agree. I think the LLC is going to be a much easier vehicle, and it's also going to protect you from liability associated with use of the property by persons other than you and your immediate family. I would absolutely advocate the LLC form. Um, You can talk about what happens when somebody no longer wants to be an owner who has rights of first refusal to buy their interest in the LLC. Um, That is a type of entity that can be very easily developed for shared ownership, family ownership, family line ownership, um, developing use agreements, policies for who gets to use it over holidays, uh, works very well in the LLC form or partnership form. Um, I have to say a lot of these properties can also be held in partnership. Again, you want a limited partnership so that you have limited liability for the owners. So let's talk about some practical, well, I don't know if it's practical, maybe some impractical usage of this. A couple things come up fairly often when I talk to clients about this. One is um, we're going to rent it out to our really good friends for a few weeks or we want to donate it to our child's school auction so that the school can raise some money. So those two scenarios, take me through, can I, is there any issue with me doing it? By the way, don't tell me I can't because I'm going to do it, right? Tell me how to do it, right? Right. But what should I be thinking about in those two instances between both renting it out and maybe donating a week to, to the charity? Well, with casual rental of the property, again, you want to make sure that you understand who's using it and what form the property, what form of ownership the property is being held in. If there's individual ownership, you want to make sure that your personal property insurance, your homeowner's insurance is going to ha- going to be able to ensure the use by somebody else who's a casual renter. Um, Does there need to be a change in insurance? Do you need a landlord's policy? Can you get a landlord policy in that state if that insurer isn't insuring other property in the state? There's a lot of issues that relate to insurance and you want to make sure that you are adequately insured. Even for the friend, you don't know what's going to happen once the friend starts using the property. And and if I may, on that, one of the things I've learned, if you've got a really good insurance person, you're not opening the box by discussing this with them. And a lot of times I've found people say, well, I don't want to bring it up because they're going to tell me I have to buy this thing. That discussion can save you an enormous amount of money. It's worth having the discussion with a great agent that says, here's what I'm thinking. Tell me what that would look like rather than just putting the head in the sand. Absolutely. And you may even find that for this type of short-term rental, your existing homeowner coverage provides adequate coverage. So the first thing is just ask the insurance uh, provider about the existing coverage and whether or not there needs to be a change in coverage. Uh, as far as transferring, transforming the home into some type of rental property, obviously you have income. There's going to be deductions for this period of time. You need to visit with an accountant to decide how those are going to offset Uh, Again, is the property going to be available always for rental use? Is it just for this few weeks? It's a one-off deal. And that might impact your decisions with respect to the property, whether or not you really place it as an investment property. And now it's something that needs to be depreciated. And now when you sell it, you're going to have some type of ordinary income recapture associated with the sale of the property. So those are some 
more significant tax issues associated with casual rental of the property that, again, you'd be very well advised to talk with an accountant and say, this is something I'm thinking about doing. How does this affect my ownership of the property? If you're holding the property in an LLC form, now you're also going to have some income in that state. Does that mean that now I have a filing obligation that I didn't have before? Um, again, if it's an out-of-state property, if it's in Texas, we're going to have some franchise tax, probably not getting to the franchise tax level with a week um, or two or three or four of rental, but there are some tax issues. So I'd say you want to talk with your accountant. I'm thinking about doing this. How does this impact the property um, and my reporting for it, depending on what form it's being held in? So, so, all right, maybe I've changed my mind. Maybe I'm not going to rent the property, but I'm going to let my in-laws, I want them to stay there throughout the whole summer, actually, because my father-in-law happens to be a really handy guy. So really, when he's there, he's just helping the house. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I just have him come stay as long as they want and help the house? So this is a question that is not an uncommon one. I have other people staying in my property and their family members. If there is some type of extended stay, arguably there is a gift that's equal to the foregone rent. We don't see this as an area where the service is really out there trying to pursue those types of claims, um, but we have had situations where there were multiple properties owned in a same juris in a same locale, and it was very difficult to believe that this one family was occupying three different residences that were all adjacent. Mm -hmm. There were family members in the other ones, um, maybe being really handy, as you've described. Okay. So I do think that's something that you want to be careful with. A type of casual use, even an extended stay, is that something that's going to be uh, discovered by the service? Maybe not, but does that mean that it's not a gift, um, which you are obligated to report as a gift? It is. So uh, again, it's just something to consider. And what's the value of the property? Is it a really great property in a really great area that has very high summer rental values? Well, now the value of that gift that just got a lot greater, right? Is it a Hamptons house that's renting for two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a month? It's a very different equation than a small condo in uh, a ski area that doesn't have a big summer population. So uh, the other question you asked was about the auction. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is one where people will a lot of times think about allowing their home to be placed in a live auction or silent auction at a charity event. And the same issues need to be thought about. Insurance is one, right? You've mm -hmm. got people you don't know staying in your property and you're not in control of it. I'm not certain that everybody at the school event or the charity event is the type of person you'd really want staying in your property. So I think the real question is, do you really want to do it? And are you open to just anybody staying there? So that's number one. Well, so let me ask a question. Let's say that I am and it's okay. I, I feel like I'll be able to vet them a little bit, right? Their kid right. goes to school. And it went, by the way, the auctioneer was wonderful and raised $25,000 for the one week usage of my house. So I get to deduct the 25000 You don't get to deduct the $25,000. No, you don't. Um, you don't get an income tax charitable deduction for a partial interest in property. So there are a lot of rules that relate to how you can claim an income tax charitable deduction. And letting somebody use your home, that's your personal home, for a week by 
offering it to a school to make it available does not qualify for the income tax charitable deduction. If you do incur some expenses associated with it, you could ask the charity to give you an unreimbursed charitable expense type of receipt. For example, if you said, well, I went ahead and did all of these things that really benefited the school, would you give me a receipt for basically this amount that I spent, additional amounts, not just the house, but I went ahead and had my windows washed or things that I would normally not have done at this time of year. Um, I haven't represented a lot of charities that have been asked to do that, I'd probably tell them, no, don't do that. Um, don't offer that unreimbursed expense. I think you have to consider that that's just one that you were doing out of the goodness of your own heart, but you do not get the $25,000 income tax charitable deduction. With that said, I'm going to say that I still love people that are willing to help raise money. Absolutely. By, you know, and you might not get a deduction, but the school or whatever organization still gets that value, which is wonderful, right? And the school just, remembers that you did that. Right. They remember that it generated yeah. that amount for the school. And again, you've done something that's nice, but you have opened yourself up to liability. And so you just really need to understand, I don't get the tax benefit. I have this liability. I may not know who's staying there. I have to say one of the things with those properties that I have found with galas and school auctions, a lot of times people don't ever make good on using that uh, property that they won at the live or silent auction. And so you do have a chance that somebody will just never be able to use the property or get the group together. Um, And you do have to be concerned about the group together, right? How many people are using the property? So it's a big decision. I think some people do it fairly casually. Some people do it who really rent their homes out on a regular basis, though. So they're really already very well equipped to go ahead and address um, who's going to be there. They don't have personal things in the residence, other other issues, which we didn't even talk about, right? If this is your regular vacation home that has all of your beautiful ski equipment, um, you may not be thrilled about somebody else coming there and taking out you know, your new snowboard or your new skis or using that snowmobile. Vehicles is another one. I mean, if you're leaving vehicles at, at a second home and other people are driving them, they need to be added as an additional insured on the insurance or they shouldn't be permitted to drive the vehicle. Yeah, and I've seen people even take timeshare that they have and give that up or whatever that might be. So maybe as a a summary of of it all, there's really four ways, right? If I heard right, correct me, I can own it outright, probably not the right answer. Rarely are you going to say the best thing you could do is just put your name down and go buy that thing. I would never say that. Yeah, you're opening yourself (laughs) up to just nothing but some issues in the future, right? That's right. Then we can go the entity route, LLC or partnership. That's Um, right. Probably more LLC, but it could be really much better for someone who's ever thinking about renting, maybe long-term ownership or multiple owners. That's right. Then we've got the revocable trust. That's right. Which is just another way to maybe avoid probate and just simplify life. Or the irrevocable trust. If we already have it in place, I think you even said, you know, be careful about what other things are in that trust. That's right. You You may still want a limited liability entity to hold the property in that trust so that you protect the other assets of the trust from any type of claims associated with the use of the property. And then let's make sure we've got the right coverage of insurance all the way around that our insurance relationship understands what it's really being used for. And let's help raise some money for charities, but probably not going to get a deduction 
doing it? Did I miss anything? Right. Mortgages are part of it. And mm-hmm. we're talking about second homes. So homestead exemptions aren't coming into play. But California is a good state to discuss this with because LLC property ownership actually doesn't benefit from some of the property tax benefits that may be available for second home owners. So it's also important to get some tax advice in the local jurisdiction and also transfers, right? If we it's already in an individual name and you want to go ahead and transfer it, is there t- some type of stamp or transfer charge on transferring it either to the revocable trust, family trust, LLC partnership, so that somebody doesn't just say, oh, after listening to this podcast, I really need to go ahead and transfer the ownership of that second home into one of these other vehicles, uh, that they really get some local counsel around those particular taxes. And I'd say the property tax in California, it's a very, very significant tax. And you're able to go ahead and transfer some of the existing property tax value to beneficiaries, certain beneficiaries under California tax law when you die. And if you have LLC ownership, that's not available to you for a second home. There is still a benefit for second homes. There's a greater benefit for a primary home. So there are some jurisdictions where, again, LLC ownership could even affect property tax issues. Well, and I think that opens up for another podcast, uh, the discussion of if I'm going to have a mortgage and I have to choose between my primary residence or my second you know, home, how do I do it? And that's where I'm going to mention that if you have questions for me, for the podcast, things you want us to cover, remember that Stephen.Lewis, S-T-E-P-H-E-N.Lewis at Bernstein.com, send in your ideas, send in your questions. If I can't figure it out, I just come to people who are smart like Tama and I get the answer for you. So send us your emails, send us your comments, and we'll answer them right here on Music to My Airs. Thanks, Tama. Thanks so much, Steve. This has been Music to My Airs. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. Music to my ears.